Thanks, Chris. Good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Jaren's. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here, and it's a great privilege to open up this next part of God's Word together. To hear God speak to us, to think through what He's saying in His Word. I always say here at Uni Church, you don't want to know what's going on in some pastor's head up the front. We want to hear what God has to say in His Word. So why don't we ask Him as we pray together now to help us to understand what He has to say. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for Your Word. We're so thankful that you don't leave us in the dark, that tonight as we come together, we have heard your word to us, the, the realities of what you would have us understand. And tonight we ask that you would open our hearts to hear what things really matter, that by your spirit, you'd shape us to see the world through your eyes and that we might come away from tonight having heard you speak in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, psychologists tell us Uh, that one of the most effective ways to offload the mental load of doing life and to reduce stress and to enhance productivity and time management is to use reminders, right? Who would have thought? A reminder helps me to remember things that I need to do. It means I don't need to keep everything in the RAM of my brain that I can write them down and they come up a little later. Reminders really are some form of letter to your future self saying, hey, Um, One reminder that I find really, really helpful is the one that I get at 6.30 in the morning. It says this, get up. (laughs) Helpful, right? Reminders can be super helpful. You know, lots of different ways that we have reminders. We want to have something on your fridge or your phone or some sort of post-it note that you kind of stick somewhere. I've always found, like, post-it notes are weird. Have you ever thought about that? Why do they call them post-it notes? Who has ever posted a post-it note? Anyone? Right? No, because we know you can just stick them places. They've got the sticky thing on the back. Whoever came up with a sticky note name, I'm like, genius. Post-it note just doesn't seem to make sense to me. But if I'm honest, despite the psychological help that reminders are, I have a love-hate relationship with reminders. I, I really do. On the one hand, they can be super helpful. That letter in the mail, uh, your rego is due in a month, you need to pay it. I'm like, great, really helpful. Or the notification that pops up on my phone once a year, it says this, today, wedding anniversary. <laughs> right? They're both costly things, but if I miss them, they're even more costly. Just, just ask my wife what happens if I miss that wedding anniversary. But on the other hand, while they're helpful on one hand, reminders actually make me kind of a little bit angry. There's, there's a kind of, I don't know, smugness to them. Have you ever felt that? It pops up on your phone, and this little reminder, and you're like, oh, it's like it's saying, you should have known better, Rowan. You know, today is your wedding anniversary. You, you should have known that. Why do I have to tell you that it's this? And this, this part of me that I kind of look at the smug little note, and I'm kind of like, well, I, I, I do thank you for bringing to the forefront of mind what I have already told you in the past that I already knew, right? I do appreciate your, your, your bringing that up for me, but it always just feels judgy. I always just kind of feel like, you know, I don't need you to tell me when I was married. I mean, were you there, phone? Were you there at my wedding day? Do you remember? No, it was like five iPhones ago. It was even longer than that. You, I had a Palm Pilot when I was married. You know that? And, woo! and it was black and white. It didn't need all this color. It did just a great job. You sitting there as you smug little note. I, sometimes I find myself getting a bit worked up, a bit frustrated. I don't need you. <laughs> But the truth is, I do. I massively need reminders. Because life is filled with so many different things that are going on around us. So many things to distract me from what's important. 
to clog my mind with the present, that I need to bring to mind at an appropriate time the right information. And that's really one of the keys to a happy and successful life. It's to put the right information in front of us at appropriate and regular times. One reminder that I love says these words, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Have you ever seen that? Right, it's a super helpful thing, because if you're going to change lanes in a car and you've got a mirror that somehow makes them further away than they actually are, which I'm not sure why you'd make a mirror like that, but anyway, you know, it's, as you look at that mirror, it says, hey, stuff's closer than you think, so don't just change lanes and hit them. Helpful reminder, at the right time, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Well, as we open this next section of 2 Peter chapter 1, God, through the Apostle Peter, wants to give you and I a reminder at the right time. In fact, he knew you'd be here tonight. And he knew we'd be opening this word and that he'd be reminding us of a reality, putting before us something, the right information at the right time. God wants you here. And he wants us to be reminded because some of the most important truths in life are actually closer than they appear. There's some things going on that we actually need to recognize. The first point in our talk tonight is the need for a reminder. If you want to take some notes, the need for a reminder. Point number one. Come with me to 2 Peter 1 verse 12. Peter holds out three times that we need a reminder. Look at this. Therefore, I'll always remind you about these things. Verse 13. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. And verse 15 as well, I'll make every effort so you're able to recall these things. Three times in four verses, Peter tells them and us of the need we have for a reminder. Now, if you're anything like me, the temptation is to start getting a bit prickly here. You know, does Peter view these people as kind of like Dory from Finding Nemo? You know, that fish that just swims around, it's like, oh, a rock, and then goes around again, the fish, oh, a rock, and then around, oh, a rock. Sometimes... We can be like that, though, can't we? We forget things so easily, and we're like, oh, that's right, exams. Oh, that's right, exams. And we forget we've got to study in between and, and kind of spend time working out how, what we're going to know before that. But in verse 12, Peter says something that's really interesting. I'll always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. Whatever the reminder is, Peter acknowledges that one, they already know what it is, and two, that they are established in this truth. They're not new things. Sometimes, as Christians, we can spend our lives searching for new things. Some of the the greatest moments in in a Christian's life are those moments where we've understood the Word of God, we've understood that Jesus is God the Son. They actually came to earth and died in our place and took the penalty that we deserve. And when you recognize that for the first time, where you see others that kind of get it, Jesus actually died my death. God, the creator of the universe, sustained the heartbeats of those that were nailing his arms into the cross so you and I could be forgiven and called God's children. That's incredible. And there's these great moments where we, we realize new things for the first time. When God shows us new things about His character and something we haven't seen before, about the way He works and and what He's done, 
It's just such a fantastic experience and something you want to celebrate. And tonight, we're going to be celebrating the baptism of, of 10 new Christians. 10 people that, yeah, woo! 10 people that have just gone, I think Jesus is the real deal. I think he really is God the Son and that he rose again and that he's coming back again. That's going to be a great celebration. And you're going to be experiencing new things as a new Christian. And if you are here today and you're thinking through the things of God and their relevance, so you're wrestling with, is Jesus worth following? I want to say there's an incredible journey ahead of you to see who this God is and what he has done. And don't just stick around the edges. Come and ask more questions. Ask some of the guys that are getting baptized tonight and chat with them about why they put Jesus at the center. Actually look at who he is and what he's done because it changes everything. But the experience of the mature Christian is an experience of being reminded things we already know and are established in, rather than always finding new things out about God. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that to be mature is to consistently keep on finding out new things about God, new things about God's nature and character. Yes, God's nature and character are endless. And we'll never this side of Jesus' return have plumbed the depths of everything there is to know about God. But when you read the Bible and you're disappointed, and you're like, oh, no, nothing new here, Jesus died and rose again, here it is. And you can't start to come a bit like, oh, I want to see some new stuff. Stop and think, no, the fact that I already know this is a sign of Christian maturity. It's a sign that I know God. and I've heard His Word and I understand Him more. That's kind of how relationships work. If you think about a marriage relationship, right? In the early days of courting and dating and early years of, of marriage, you, you learn lots about one another. You're like, oh, wow, they've got blue eyes. Oh, that's so special, you know? I, I still remember the moment I saw Sarah's smile for the first time. And I was like, wow, you get, a, you get an amazing smile. I love Sarah's smile. It's incredible. But, you know, I, I kind of am amazed at that and, and, and I cherish that. But there are things that we do find out about each other. But the more mature your marriage is, the longer you've spent with one another, the less new things you're going to find out. Sarah and I have been married for 22 years. I don't roll over in one, bed, one day in bed and go, oh, your eyes are blue. There's a problem here. She's like, who have you been looking at for the last 22 years, Rowan, if you can't recognize that reality? See, the sign of a mature relationship is that after 30 years, you don't go, whoa, I never realized that new thing. Now, it's calling to mind the incredible things that you already know. Sure, there'll be little bits and pieces on the way through, but they won't be as large as you keep going forward because you get to know them. Now, the joy of a mature relationship is dwelling on those things that you know, celebrating them, reminding ourselves and the other person about how great they are and how much you love them and responding to them in ways that fit well. So it is with the mature Christian life. And don't be discouraged when you open up God's Word and don't find anything new that week. Be encouraged as a sign of maturity in your relationship with God that, yes, I know what's gone on. And instead, allow God's Word to remind you of things you already know about God, of the things you are established in and the implications for how you live. Let them remind you of those truths and let them change the way you live. You're not going to see new things every year for the rest of your life as a Christian. See, our biggest danger, as people who trust in Jesus, who are in a relationship with God, isn't lack of knowledge. It's forgetting the beauty, the, the wonder, the truthfulness, and the, the significance of what we already know and are established in. 
So the world that Peter is writing to in the first century was a world drowning in mythology of Zeus and Epaphrodite, stories that had no eyewitness accounts, stories that the majority of society believed in and lived by, that the the cultural kind of currents drew everyone along to, that you you had to kind of go along with this because that's what your parents taught and that's what you were a part of. And while the recipients of this letter had come to see the real historical relevance of Jesus, that He came, He lived, He died, He rose again, Everything in their culture in this first century was pulsating with a call to focus on these other stories, to join in the worship of these fertility gods, to live out their cultural heritage. It's not that it caused them straight away to throw away the truths they knew to be true, but it had the effect of dulling the brilliance of what they already knew and were established in, of perhaps moving to the point where you relegate the historical realities of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the realm of just maybe it is more like a myth. It's more like a guy we can just follow. There's some helpful truths about Jesus. It doesn't really have that much impact on my life today. I gotta say, it's not much different today. Sure, it's not the myths of Zeus and Epaphrodite that, that kind of draw us in, but it's the pulsating message of the world around us, that what is most important is your comfort. We live, we die, that's it. So make the most of today. YOLO, you only live once, live it out. The pressure in our society is, look, you can believe whatever you want about your religion, because really, we don't think it's actually real anyway. We don't think there's any God. So you can, you can have whatever belief you have in that way, but just don't believe it too much. Don't let it shape the way you interact with me. Don't let it shape the way you, you think about interactions with others. And, and don't be too certain about it either, because certainty breeds arrogance. And any time you claim to know something surely or, or think that I actually think you're wrong, that's just arrogant. So don't be that. Push that down. Or worst case scenario, don't become one of those fundamentalists that believe God actually speaks through His Word. Because, man, people do crazy stuff, and we've seen them on the news. Don't be one of those people. And so, in the culture we live in, our natural tendency is to pull back, to relegate the things we know and become established in, in trusting in Jesus, to relegate them to the private realm that never raises its head publicly, it never raises its head in, in our lives. And before long, Jesus doesn't raise his head in our decisions or our direction, and we just go with the flow. So, Peter writes to them and to us, to wake them and us up with a reminder. There's a real sense of urgency you kind of pick up as he writes about it. It's not just kind of a, oh, hey guys, by the way, a few things, keep remembering the things I told you, you know, just move on, all right, next. It's not a small thing. Three times in four verses, he says this, look at verse 13. I think it's right, not just a good idea, not not just, oh, and it's something I want to do. I think it is right. There is a moral obligation for Peter in some way. As long as I'm in this bodily tent, and he's talking about his body, he wasn't living in a tent at that point, to wake you up with a reminder. That's what Peter commits his life to. And he does that knowing he's going to die. What would you spend the last few weeks, months, or moments of your life doing? If you knew your life was going to end, he seems to know, and we'll have a look at why. What would you do? Peter uses all his energy to remind those he knows and loves of what really matters, so they won't just drift with the cultural current, so they'll understand what will get them to... The eternity he's just spoken of in chapter 1. That life that lasts forever because of the forgiveness of Jesus. 
So Peter says, as long as I'm in this bodily tent, this time now is just temporary. It's like a a blink. I'll wake you up with the reminder. Since I know I'll soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. Now you read that and you're like, whoa, Peter knows when he's going to die. Is that that what he's saying? Is is Peter here, um, got his death date? I watched a while ago, Netflix series, Manifest. Anyone seen that? Pretty B-rated, average, kind of boring. But spoiler alert, that they end up working out that they all know each other's death date, the day they're going to die. And and it's horrible when you know that's happening. There's all these sorts of, "Ah, is that what's going on? Is this God's word saying you can know your death date? No, (laughs) it's not saying that. But, But Peter kind of does. How do we know? Well, actually, it's recorded in John 21. Come with me to what, listen to what Jesus said as Jesus had risen from the dead, right? John records, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers records what he says to Peter. Look at this, John 21, verse 16. When they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Pointing to those around him, I guess. Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Now, remember, Peter just earlier had denied Jesus three times, right? Jesus says, feed my lambs. A second time, Jesus asked Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Jesus tells him, shepherd my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. What's he talking about? John tells us. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus told Peter, follow me. Jesus told Peter three times to feed his sheep. With your life, Peter, you know the truth of who I am. You've, you've seen who I am. You've, you've been amongst my teaching. Feed my sheep. The risen Jesus commissioned Peter in a real historical moment to send him out to speak the word and food that we need, the message that we need to come back to and be reminded of. And he also indicated the great cost of Peter doing that, that Peter would be bound and stretched out like Jesus, laying down his life, to proclaim the word of God so he might feed Jesus' sheep. Here in Peter's last letter, he knows what's before him. He knows time is short. Church history tells us that Paul and Peter were executed probably under the reign of Emperor Nero, who loved ripping Christians apart. Church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be in the same way as his saviour. And before that happened, as he headed to his death, knowing that would happen, having been commissioned by God the Son himself, he uses his last words and moments to remind them and you and me of what we need to focus on, what we need to consistently and continually be reminded of, the truth that we know and have been established in. And it's this, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Point number two tonight, the truth that changes everything. The truth that changes everything. See, the truth that changes everything is the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see that? 
We didn't follow cleverly contrived myths, Peter says, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that coming could have been the first coming of Jesus, but it kind of doesn't make sense. When we made known to you that Jesus came, everyone knew that Jesus came in the first century, that that heard of him. There's all sorts of graffiti that we've still found in ancient um, archaeology of of people hassling, people worshipping the risen Jesus, this this Alexemenos worshipping him, his God graffiti. It could be talking about his first coming, but there's two hints that it's not. Firstly, the word that's used here is not the usual word for just someone coming and going. It's this technical word that's called parousia. It almost always refers to the second coming of Jesus. The day he comes back to judge the living and the dead. The day he comes back and puts away evil and starts his reign as the, the ruler of this world. The second hint comes in chapter 3 that we're going to hit in a couple of weeks. Chapter 3, verse 3. Peter says this, Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last day, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he's promised? The world around us wants us to think that Jesus is not coming back. The idea of there being a judge and being held to account, well, that's something we want for our enemies, but never for ourselves or our loved ones, is it? But Peter wants to remind us that this is the reality. This is what they needed to remember. That Jesus is coming back. That he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That the end of the world will come. And then there is life beyond that for those who trust in him. And he wants to remind us, not because of some story someone made up a couple of hundred years ago, sitting around a campfire. Now, Peter reminds us of this because he is convinced they are historical truths worth believing in. He gives us two reasons. The first reason is that they are eyewitnesses. They are eyewitnesses. So you could say two part A, eyewitnesses. Look at verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honour and glory from God the Father when God the Father's voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So here in verse 16 to 18, Peter is speaking about an experience that he, James and John really had. It's recorded in Mark 6 and it's called the transfiguration. It's this moment that Jesus says, come up this mountain with me. And they go up the mountain and there on the mountain before them, Jesus changes. He's glorified. His face starts to shine like the sun. And Peter's like, without a shadow of doubt, this is what I saw. His clothes became dazzling white. Now, the question for us is, what's the transfiguration got to do with Jesus coming again? Why is he saying this is the thing you've got to be reminded of? Well, because the transfiguration, this moment Jesus shone with his glory of glorious white, is kind of like a movie preview. Now, you know how when you see a a preview to a movie, uh, you kind of get a glimpse of what's to come. You're like, huh, they've actually shot some scenes. This is great. There's this preview coming there. There's some things that go on. There's a plot line. It guarantees you that the movie that is actually promised to come will come because you're seeing some of those scenes in front of you. Now, unlike a modern day preview, where they're always, pretty much always, better than the actual movie, do you find that? 
you're like, oh, I've got the whole plot line. I stop watching previews now. I, I watch a little bit, and as soon as I'm convinced I want to watch the movie, I like stop it. And Sarah's like, I want to see the end of it. I'm like, no, no, it's going to ruin the movie. Because ah! sometimes the movies are so shocking that the preview is the best thing. This is not like that. <laughs> this is just a taste of the incredible future that is coming in. What Peter, James, and John saw that day on the mountain was a pre-released scene of the future coming of Jesus in glory. They saw a pre-release of what would happen in the future. God gave them a glimpse that Jesus would come back transformed, shining with brightness and light to rule His world forever. And for a moment, the future became the present for them on that mountain. And Peter says to us, we saw it. We were actually there. This wasn't some hallucination. We weren't picking mushrooms and sat back and like, whoa, I had an amazing dream. No, no, it actually went on, right? But not only did they see Jesus glorified, they also heard God speak. Look at verse 17. The voice came to him, to Jesus, from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. They heard God beam these words out. Mark's Gospel records that those same words were said also at Jesus' baptism when he was baptized. That this voice came from heaven saying, This is my son in whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Peter's saying, This happened. We heard it. We saw it. We were there. Not some guy somewhere once thought about this thing. Me, the one who's writing to you right now. We were there when God the Father identified his son to us. We saw it and we heard it. Friends, this is not the thing of myth and legend, but historical fact is what Peter is saying. And maybe on its own, you could say they were mistaken. Something went on. They were just dreaming, hallucinating. But the second reason Peter gives for his confidence in the truth is what he calls the prophetic word. So maybe 2B, prophetic word. Look at verse 19. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. And you do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, Peter here, when he speaks of the prophetic word, he has in mind the Old Testament, but not just the whole Old Testament of, of, of the Bible. Specifically, things that prophets of the Old Testament said, because when God said those words, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased, he was kind of smooshing together two well-known Old Testament quotes. He was taking from Psalm 2, which is like Israel's greatest hits book, right? And in Psalm 2, it's talking about the king who would come, who would rule the nations. And God calls that king, he says, he will be my son. Hundreds of years before this day, God had said he would send his son. He had got the psalmist to write down in, the, in the Israel's greatest hits book this song that people sung, that the one who was coming to rule the world would be his son. And the second thing that God quoted at the transfiguration, the second part of that, that sentence was Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is talking about him, God, delighting in his servant. And his servant would bring injustice to the nations. And throughout all of Isaiah, you see this suffering servant who would come and suffer and, and, and bring justice to the nations. Is this picture that's held up. And what God does at the transfiguration is says, This is my son. Think of Psalm 2. Promised king who is going to rule forever. And then he says, the one in whom I delight, I am well pleased. He's the suffering servant that I promised in Isaiah 42 who would bring in justice and God's reign forever. What Peter is saying is, 
When we saw and heard this transfiguration, we saw Jesus shine forth his picture of the future and, and we heard the words, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. We knew that he wasn't God just saying from heaven, oh, isn't my son great? Kind of rubbing him on the head, a bit of glory, woo, and then kind of moved on, right? He's saying, he's here. The promised king I've been speaking about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is here. He is my son. And he has come to bring the end. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. And you will do well to pay attention to it. Remember, this was spoken so long ago. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And the morning star here is, is most probably Venus. And for part of the year, Venus rises on the equator, um, uh, on, the, on the horizon, sorry, um, just before the sun comes up. It's kind of like, a, hey, when you see this morning bright star come up, you're like, hey, the sun's going to come pretty soon. Peter's point is, until the day comes when Jesus comes back in his second coming, these prophetic words and Peter's testimony about what they saw, they... They are the morning star. They are the thing that points us to the reality that Jesus is coming. They are the certainty that you can know that Jesus is coming back. That's why he tells us the, the function of the Old Testament Scriptures. He points out how God's Word works. Verse 20, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture came about from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The world around us today wants us to say that God's Word, the Bible, is just a man-made invention of myth and legend. Something that humans have made up to kind of control humanity. It's just human words. Peter is saying, no, 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 no. God said He would send His Son. And I've seen him. I saw the pre-release glimpse. And I heard God's voice point him out. And I saw what Jesus did. And I saw him die. And I saw him rise again. And I want to proclaim to you this reality that actually happened. So the Old Testament, while men did write that down, the idea is that God was inspiring it. It's like, as they wrote the Word of God, God filled the wind of their sails to write it, so to speak, and the Holy Spirit carried them along. And sure, they wrote it with their own style, and they wrote it with their own minds. They weren't just puppets. But they wrote it down because God was working through them to point forward to what He would do in the future. In other words, the prophetic word about Christ coming again in power and glory didn't originate with human prophet making up some vision or dream and interpreting it. It came from God Himself. See, the issue that's at stake here in 2 Peter, why this letter is so, so very relevant for you and me today, is because our secular society denies that Jesus is coming back again. I mean, who do you know who is not a Christian, who actually lives with that as a present reality? They think, you know, yeah, I think Jesus is going to come back again. Our world doesn't. They don't care about the reality. I think that's a myth and a legend. They haven't looked at the reality of history. But we need to be reminded of this. We don't need some new and fancy revelation of God to say, hey, look, I'm God. Look at what I've done. Because Jesus has already stepped onto the world's surface. In reality, in human history, he's done it. 
I don't need some powerful experience to convince me that there's a spiritual realm because we've got the Word of God spoken hundreds of years earlier and then coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And what we need is to be reminded of the pre-release scene that Peter, James and John saw and recorded for us. We need to be reminded of the prophetic word that God spoke that was confirmed in Jesus. And be reminded of how important that is, that we might live hearing God's word, listening to his voice, dwelling in it, not looking for the new thing, but reveling in what he has said. Jesus is coming back again. Peter sees his life's purpose. Everything he does with his hours, weeks, months and years is to remind everyone around him of that historical reality. Friends, don't be like me. Don't despise the reminder and get angry at it and feel like you're being all judged by it. Hear the reality. God keeps reminding us of what has gone on so we might dwell on it. Jesus is coming back. How does that change the way you live this week? The things that I invest in, am I living just for my comfort or am I thinking about a kingdom that will never perish, spoil or fade? Who is the ruler of my life? Is is it me? Am I calling the shots? Or am I looking to the king whose glory shone out, a picture of what would be to come, who would rule the earth forever? We need to dwell on the word of God and let the return of Jesus shape our priorities and what we live for, where we invest our time, what we look forward to. And tonight, as we baptize these 10 people, we're baptizing people who are saying, I want to keep living for Jesus. I'm so convinced he is who the Bible says he is. I want to put him at the center of my life and I want to live for him and I want to make a public declaration of that. And I would love for us all to remember how important that is. If you're here, for, you know, supporting them, you're a friend and family, ask them, why is this so central to you? If you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time and you're like, yep, I know this, I've heard this before, hear Peter's warning to wake up and say, this matters. Live your life in response to the reality of the return of Jesus. Let Peter remind you that this might be your reality too. The reality that you wake up to and the reality that stops you from drifting the ways of this world and cherish that future secured by Jesus, living for him, dwelling on his powerful word that helps you to put front and center in your life the king who is coming back, who's died for you, who's been risen from the dead, who will judge the living and the dead and offers us life that does not end. Friends, to be reminded of what we know is what we need. Let's pray God will keep doing that for us every day. Father God, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you that you know each and every one of us would be here, that this would be your word to us, that you planned before all humanity for us to hear this word this evening. So would we hear it as it really is, as your word, yes, written by the hands of man, but inspired by your spirit. By your spirit, would you comfort us in this truth that Jesus is coming back? Would you encourage us with the reality that he's died in our place and risen again? Would you help us to come and trust you? For those of us here tonight, Lord, that are thinking through your things and what it is to trust you, we ask that you would show yourself to them. That you would show us the clarity of your love, the reality of the future and the historical moments that Peter spends his time and effort pointing out that we might have life. And for those of us who do trust these truths, 
that are established in them, Lord. Help us to be people that are reminded by them consistently. Would your word and spirit keep reminding us of these truths? Would you help us to have time in it, to understand it, to dwell on it, to marvel at who you are and what you've done? And Lord, help us to live our lives in light of Jesus' return. We pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.